Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather once again and discuss your word, ponder your word, and hopefully hear from your word, hear your spirit preach to our souls, and teach us from the wonderful letter of Ephesians. Just ask that you open the eyes of our heart to behold wonderful things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we had a little, I wasn't here, so. Jeff Palin came in and did a different, a different take, and the, I guess it was an overview is what I heard. It was more like a, where the emphasis come from, Ephesians come from, who was he writing to, and that kind of thing. And basically what I'm doing, I'm going to pick up where I left off, and we're just going to keep marching through verse by verse by verse. That was the plan. That was the way Jeff and I worked it out. He give me a spell in a week and kind of give the overview. I'm just going into the nitty-gritty details. But it is, it is interesting that this letter has so little information about the original recipients. Or even about Paul himself, for that matter. I mean, he didn't, he only mentioned his name in the first verse himself, right? He said Paul. An apostle, right? He didn't say anything more. And he's not going to say anything about himself until chapter 3. So he's so just delivering the word that he doesn't even think it's important to tell the people that he's actually writing from prison. Because if you look at chapter 3, he says, I call the prisoner of the Lord. And if you're reading that, it might surprise you. It's like, really? You wrote this, this from prison? <laughs> but he did. <coughs> And it just goes to show you how little he, his circumstances apparently didn't affect him that much. That he would write something like this. Not only this, he actually wrote three other letters from prison. There's four prison letters. And he doesn't, in, in this letter for sure, he doesn't make much mention of it at all. He does a little bit more in Philippians. If you read Philippians chapter 1, you'll, you'll hear some interaction about some of the sufferings he's going through, but Ephesians and Colossians and even Philemon, the other three, those are the three of the four prison letters. He doesn't even, it's like, oh, by the way, I'm a prisoner. And uh, at the end of Ephesians, when he asks for prayer for himself, the last few verses, he doesn't pray for, oh, by the way, the food sucks here. Would you please pray that my circumstances would be better and these bonds irritating my ankles would be loosened. He doesn't pray for any of that. All he asks for is for people reading the letter to pray that the gospel would go forth through him. It's rather remarkable. This letter was written from prison and he's so centered on God that and what he's writing that the fact that he's in prison doesn't hardly even factor into it. So where we're going to pick up today, if you get the handouts, and there's a few in the back there, everybody's got it. We're going to pick up in Ephesians 2, verse 11, and go through the end of chapter 2. The handout shows you uh, my translation of those verses from the, the Greek text, which I'll be referring to, and I'll also refer to ESV, and if you have other translations. 
that's fine. It's good to use different translations. It's not like one is holier than the other. Um, keep what you should keep in mind when you're reading your English Bibles is Paul didn't write in English. I forget about that sometimes. I think Paul wrote this. Well, he did, but he didn't write the way it's translated. So our translations are, are faithful translations of what he was saying into our language. And sometimes what he says is difficult to translate. And it's actually helpful to look at different versions side by side, especially if that's what I do, even with the Greek. So look and see how the English is translated in different versions, including NIV and the New Living Translation, and some of the ones that are more paraphrases, King James even. Just look at all of them, and you, and you just compare these verses, and you say, you, you can get a better feel for what maybe was going on behind the scenes in the Greek. Because if, if the verses agree, basically it's pretty clear. But if there's some interesting variations, that means the translators aren't really sure what the Greek meant, and they're translating it differently. So it's just, it's just a good way to study. So look at as many translations as you can. Don't look at a translation and dismiss it as that's a bad translation. Most of the ones available today are helpful. I'll just say it that way. I'm not going to say they're all, well, this one's bad and this one's good. They have their strengths and they have their weaknesses. So that's a good way to study scripture is to, even if you don't know the original languages, is just to compare. Just compare verses in the different translations. And there's Bible software that'll do that for you. There's a website that'll do that for you. It's free. Just go to the website and type in the verse and it'll give you 25 different translations of that verse and you can just go down, look at them and go, wow, there's a lot of disagreement on this one. It's supposed to be a controversial one. Or, oh, they all say the same thing. I guess that's what it means. So, with that said, let me get back to Ephesians. Ephesians 2.11. Ephesians 2.11 is kind of a, a change in not the tone of the letter, but in what he's talking about. If I were putting chapter designations, I would have put a chapter designation between 10 and 11. This is kind of a new thought that he's going to. Um, previously, the first... Uh, 14 verses were that glorious description of God the Father, the Blessed One, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and he enumerates the blessings, and it's, it's all about God the Father's call on our lives, if you will. It's, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He had predestined us for adoption as sons. He sent his son to redeem us and forgive us, and he's actually, there's an inheritance, an allotment that he's given to us as well, and that allotment, surprisingly, we'll learn today, is him dwelling with us. God's allotment is a dwelling place with us, and us with him. And then in verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul starts to pray for the the reasons he just given he says I'm going to pray for my audience the holy and faithful ones at Ephesus and everywhere else that this letter is read that that they would and his primary prayer request is that they would know God better that they would be 
they would receive. He would, he would give them, as he words it in his very artistic way, give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And we discussed that a few weeks back. And then he, he, he specifies a few other requests in that prayer. He says, I want you to know God in three particular ways. Number one, I want you to know what is the hope of his calling. And if you listen to the sermon this morning, you would know that called, the call is a big part of the letter of Jude that we're beginning in there. The hope of that calling, this one. Number two, that we would know the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, of his inheritance in the saints, which is an interesting phrase. And then thirdly, that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then, after he says those three things, the prayer tapers off, he kind of stops praying, and he gets back into just worshipful theological exposition about that last phrase, about that last one that says that you would know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then he spends the rest of chapter 1 and actually all the way through chapter 2, verse 11 on expounding what that looks like, what that surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe looks like. Literally, from 19 through 210, it's really one big long section. It's a couple sentences. Not all one sentence, but it's one section expounding this great, great power of God so that we can understand it. And the, the the subject of the verse, the verses, is still the Father, really, because it's the Father who's demonstrating the power through His Son and by the Spirit. So the Father demonstrates His great power towards us who believe first by, end of chapter one, raising up Jesus, seating Him at the right hand on high high places and by giving him his head over the church. So he raises Jesus from the dead physically, seats him above, far above all rule and authority. That's one demonstration of power. And then the second demonstration of power is he shows how that power is towards us who believe. Because we who, are, who believe are in Christ too. And therefore it says in chapter 2 verse 4, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that's verse 1 chapter 2, Verse 4, he says, but God made us alive and raised us together with Christ and seated us together with Christ in heavenly places. So this great power that he displayed in Jesus also applies to those who believe because we're in Christ. We are in him, and since he's been raised, we've been raised with him. Since he has been taken to heaven and seated at the right hand of the heavenly places, we too, in a sense, are there. And it's interesting that he says it in the past tense, too. He doesn't say, this is where you're going. He says, no, you're there. In a sense, you are with Christ right now. You look around and say, how is that possible? Physically, we don't see it yet, but that's, a, that's really like a guarantee that we will eventually. We have, now we have the, the Holy Spirit as a seal in our hearts. And the experience of being with Jesus at the right hand is real in some mysterious way. But it is, according to what Scripture says there in chapter 2. So, but it's God the Father who's doing this. 
God the Father is the one who raised Jesus, and it's also God the Father who made us alive. Now, he did it through Jesus, and he did it by the Spirit. The Trinity always works in concert. They're not doing independent stuff. But the Father is the initiator, the way Paul writes it. It's always the Father doing everything through Ephesians 2.10. Now, the switch, when we get to 2.11, one of the switches changes is he's going to start talking about the work of Christ instead of just the work of the Father. And he's going to focus more on what Christ was doing. Not to say the Father's not involved, but the, the way he's writing it is Christ is the one doing what he's talking about from chapter 2.11 onward. And um, another thing we'll note well, I'll say that after we start reading these verses. So, 2.11, he says, Therefore, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh, formerly you were Gentiles in the flesh. Well, they still are Gentiles in the flesh, but formerly, as Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by those called the circumcision, which is handmade in the flesh. Now, the way I translated it there, the word called that you see in most in ESV is, is not a bad word. It's actually good. But the, I translated it differently because the called word that's actually present is not the <coughs> called word that was in the prayer, the hope of his calling, nor the called word that was preached today from the pulpit, but were called, loved, Kept. It's a different word. It's not that call. It's not a call from God. He uses a different word, and as I translated it, it's really the word. It's really the word that you are talked about as you are called in the sense that someone's giving you a, a name or a label. But it's not God in this case. There's a distinction. The people who are reading this letter are largely Gentiles. The way he's writing it here. He says, you were formerly Gentile, you formerly Gentiles in the flesh, you guys, you happen to be called the uncircumcision. You were called the uncircumcision by some others who just so happen to be called the circumcision. They're said to be the uncircumcision. Said to be the circumcision. It's like name-calling. The circumcision guys look at you and go, ooh, they're the uncircumcision guys. <laughs> and the uncircumcision guys go, ooh, those guys are jerks. And you have the two groups and never the twain shall meet. They're, and it's, it's a, like a name calling. Not a, not a God has called you this, but hey, you guys are the uncircumcision. So there's a distinction there in, in just in the language. And that's what he's doing here, saying you Gentiles in the flesh were called the uncircumcision by these other folks who were called called themselves the circumcision but by the way the circumcision was handmade in the flesh kind of throws that in there at the end of the verse it's a handmade thing this is not a heaven made calling this is a this is a, a physical distinction okay so Paul's even writing it like you know it's you're called a pejorative by these guys but what they call themselves they don't need to be proud of because it's nothing special handmade. It wasn't like God made them that way. 
he's kind of setting up the stage here of the the us and them kind of thing. Actually, the contrast is going to be those who are far off and those who are near. And that's going to show up here in a couple verses. And then he, he goes on to say, remember, guys, remember, back then, you were characterized different ways. You were characterized. There was some truth to the fact that you were you, were, you weren't part of the group called the circumcision. And he lists a bunch of reasons. He actually lists, lists six of them in verse 12. Six distinctions that made them, the original readers, different from the, the circumcision, the, the Jews of the Old Testament, the Jewish nation at the time. You guys weren't part of that group. You were outsiders. You were outcasts. And, and the first thing he says in the list is you were without Christ. And then he says, you were alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. So, you, you weren't part of this Israel citizenship. There was a true alienation there. You, were, you weren't among those who received the covenants of promise the way they did. You were strangers to that. You were, were excluded from it. And he also says you were without Christ. And I've inserted the, a little article there to kind of, I think the distinction is to the Gentiles, they, they didn't know there was a Christ. They didn't have a Christ. They didn't have a, a Savior or a Messiah or anything like that. So the thought there is, at the time you, you didn't have a, a Christ. You didn't even know there was a Christ. And the Christ happens to be the big promise to the circumcision. The big promise of the Old Testament. The circumcision have been looking forward to this Christ and you guys, you're alienated from that. You're strangers from that. And you don't even know it's, the Christ isn't for you anyway. It's, it's for them. And so you're, you're just totally separate from this other group of people. And then he lists three more. Those, those three, by the way, those three lists, I think, are what distinguish these Gentiles formally where they were with who the Jews are at that time. The Jews at that time were looking forward to a Christ. They had citizenship in Israel and they were not strangers to the covenants. They knew the covenants and they knew the promise of Messiah. There's a separation, physical separation between circumcised and uncircumcised. The next three listed not having hope without God in the world and actually I'm separating in the world as a third one. You didn't have hope. You didn't know God. You didn't have have a relationship with God and you were in the world. In the world in the sense earlier in the chapter, you walking in the course of this world, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. You were you were also separate from God. You were in the world, you didn't know God, you had no hope because you didn't know God. So you were in bad shape. You Gentiles were outside the insider group. And because of it, you didn't have any relationship with God. You were far away. You were far away from everything. Jim, I think there's maybe one other thing, and, and you kind of alluded to it, but not maybe directly, in the separation between verse 10 and verse 11. So an 11 would be the first commandment in the letter of Ephesians, right? Remember. You caught it, huh? Yeah. Remember is an imperative. Right. Yeah. That's the first imperative. It's generally not considered the first command because it is a command. 
grammatically, right? But this is more like he's telling the readers, for the sake of argument, remember who you were, where you were, so I can show you what I'm about to show you, verses 13, 14, 15, and on. So yes, it's, it technically is a command, but it's a command to the ones who are reading, remember where you were. And I'm not saying we shouldn't remember where we were, but it is a command, and it's it's more for the sake of his argument. He wants the Gentiles who he's writing to to take pause and think about where was I before I was in this church in Ephesus? Where was I? And he's describing what where they were. Much like he did in verse 1, without saying specifically who, he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember verse 1 and 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, and so forth. He's kind of doing the same thing here, but he's talking specifically to these, this, the original readers, the Gentiles in the flesh. And he said, just remember, this is the way you were. And he's going to do something similar that he did in the first part of the chapter. The first part of the chapter, he was basically saying, remember you were dead. He didn't say remember, but he's making the argument. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God made you alive. God the Father made you alive. You were dead, but God made you alive, just like Jesus was dead, and God made him alive and raised him. You were dead. The first, the first ten verses are talking about you were dead in your relationship to God. You were dead, here's God, you have no connection with him until God intervenes graciously and makes you alive by his spirit through Christ. Now, he's telling the same audience, consider this, not only had you had no relationship with God, vertical relationship, you had no relationship horizontally with the people of God. Not only were you dead with the God, you were far away from the people of God. The Old Testament people of God. So he's kind of saying the same, he's, he's taking the same tact here as he did in the first three verses. Except he's, the aim now is, just think, there were this people of God who had these special covenants and these special promises and who had a promise of Christ and were looking for him and you were you were dead to them too you, you had no relationship with them you were excluded by them as a matter of fact so the first 10 is the vertical 11 to 22 he's going to talk about the horizontal primarily you were dead relationally you had no contact with the people of God you had no you were excluded by them actually as a matter of fact, you had hostility towards them. Enmity, that's going to come up in a few verses. Jim? Yes? Uh, is this church at Ephesus primarily made up of Gentile believers? Based upon this, this wording, I would have to assume yes. Because this letter is, this part of the letter is pretty clear that he's writing, he's, he's, he's writing you Gentiles almost like that's all who you are as Gentiles. He doesn't seem to make an exception for Jews within the church. So I would assume this was primarily a Gentile church. That that's, right. that's consistent with the geography, right? I mean, yeah. where, where, the, where this church was, as well as Paul's ministry, right? 
James and Peter to the Jews. Yes. So based on the way he's the language here, I think we have to, that's a good assumption. Now, it doesn't mean there weren't Jews there, but he's writing to them as if you're all Gentiles. I mean, he's not, he's not making an exception for Jews in his language. And he actually hinted at that. That reminded me, he started this distinction back in chapter 1. If you remember at the end of uh, verse 12 and 13, when he talks about we who were the first to believe, and then he says, but you, you, when you heard and believed, you too were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So even in the first 12, 13, and 14, he seems to have this distinction of we who were first, we meaning people like Paul, Jews, and perhaps speculate, maybe he's even talking about Old Testament believers, we, we who had this already had the blessing, you too now have it. He was he was already hinting at this distinction in the very first couple of verses, in that little couple of phrases in 12 and 13, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He, he makes a, a we, you distinction there, which now is coming out with more clarity here in 211. It says, you, Gentiles, you guys, separated. You were dead in relationship. You had no you are people of God and you had no connection to the people of God just like before you were dead in your sins and had no connection with God the Father you also had no connection with anybody you were totally excluded and then just like in Ephesians 2 4 where it says but God made us alive look at verse 13 another amazing verse but now, in Christ Jesus, you, the ones who formerly were far off, have been brought near in the blood of Christ. But now, it's not true anymore. Something has happened, just like in verse 4 and 5 and 6. You were raised, you were made alive and raised and seated. Now, you who were once far off, been brought near. And the verb is actually a more of become near. So I put that in my translation. So it's almost like a sudden, a sudden, you, you didn't come slowly. You, 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 you were outsiders and all of a sudden you're insiders. It's like a sudden, through the blood of Christ, something happened. You're positionally inside the people of God now. And it happened somehow by the blood of Christ, or in the blood of Christ, is literally, the preposition is in. It happened in the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ somehow, and he's going to tease that out in a few verses, somehow this blood of Christ has converted the far-off ones to become near ones. Been brought near. You were once far off. Jesus Christ, notice this, Jesus Christ, not the Father, Jesus Christ. His blood brought you near. So, like I said, the, Jesus is the one who's kind of the activator, the initiator in these verses. Jesus brought a bunch of far-off people near by his blood, somehow. And we'll keep going, and that'll become more clear. Or at least you'll see his argument become more clear. 
Because in verse 14 and 15 and 16, that's, that, that, that's a, sin, a single sentence in the Greek, those three verses. This section doesn't have a huge 10-verse sentence like the others do. It's got, <laughs> it's got chunks. It's got actually five sentences. So he's getting a little bit more succinct in his sentences. The first sentence was one and two. Verse, the but now is a sentence all by itself. But now in Christ Jesus, you, the ones who were once far off, have been brought near in the blood of Christ. And now he's beginning another sentence, which is going to ex help explain this. And that's what the little four in front of it tells you. Whenever you see the word four, it's, it's an explanation. It's, it's additional information to help you understand the statement he just made. He just made a fantastic statement. He made a, a pretty incredible claim that the blood of Christ somehow took the far off ones and made them near. And he's going to explain it now. In 14, 15, and 16, he's going to explain it. Or try to explain it. And it's up for us, by the help of the Holy Spirit, to try to figure out what he means. Because Paul's writing is so thick and rich. So verse 14 reads, For he himself is our peace. Which is another statement to pause at and memorize. I think I said a couple weeks ago when I was here last that Usually the statements we memorize are the ones with the fours in front of them. You know, for God so loved the world. For by grace you've been saved. Here's another one you could memorize. It's very short. Why not? For he himself is our peace. That's an easy one. For he himself is our peace. Which, at this juncture, you're kind of like, um, how does that fit in? And he'll explain it, but he just puts it out there. He's our peace. Who made the both one? He's our peace who made the both one. Now, the who made the both one, this is starting to get into it. And I translated it that way intentionally. The two groups, the both, the far, the former far and near ones, Jesus somehow has made those two opposing groups one. So that the former far off are now no longer far off, they're near. They've been joined with the other near ones. The two, the both, are now one. And he did this. He himself is our peace. He made the both one. How did he do that? Verse 14 says basically two ways. Two different, he goes down two different trains here to explain how in the world he made the both one. And he did this himself. He himself. Jesus himself did this. He did it first by tearing down the dividing wall of partition, or the dividing wall of division, or the dividing wall. Actually, ESP just says the dividing wall. It's actually two words, so I've got it up there. The dividing wall, it's like he tore down the dividing wall that was dividing them kind of thing. It's, it's, he's making a point. It was a very divisive wall. It really kept the two groups apart. He tore it down, and, and he also calls that that's the hostility. That, that, that's, that dividing wall was the hostility that, now you're starting to see where the word peace might make sense. He's our peace. These two groups are hostile towards one another. They have a dividing wall. 
separating them. So he's tearing it down. And Jesus is doing this. He's tearing down the dividing wall, which happens to be the hostility between the both, and he's making one out of them. Hence, he's our peace. See, it starts to make a little sense now. He's our peace, how? Because he tore down the hostility that was dividing the two groups and made one group out of them. Therefore, he's our peace. He's the peace between the two groups. That's, that's what the peace he's referring to at this point means. It's a horizontal peace between these two hostile groups. And he did it by tearing down the wall. And I think it's interesting that he's using, he's got a construction metaphor going here. He's using physical construction, which will come into play later because he's tearing down something and later he's going to build something. He's going to build a building in its place. So they've got the, got the master contractor here wiping out this wall that's just creating hostility between, or a result of the hostility between these two groups. He's wiping that out, and he's building something in his place. And you can read the last three verses ahead, ahead to know what he's building. He's building a temple. He's building a, a dwelling place for the two groups to live with him. Just to tease out what's coming. But you've got the construction metaphor started here. Dividing wall of partition. So that's what he did. And then, and also there's the word in his flesh. The ESP has this, this little phrase in his flesh is kind of like, where does it fit in here? Um, John Eady, my buddy from 1854. <laughs> that's kind of funny to call him a buddy. <laughs> he, he thinks the in his flesh, it actually fits between the two phrases. Well, the end of 14 and the beginning of 15. He thinks it goes with the second, in his flesh, nullifying the law of commandments and decrees. Frankly, you can go either, either place if you take in his flesh to mean by his blood. You think it's, it's just another way of saying by his blood or in his blood in verse 13? Then, yes, his death tore down the dividing wall. He's going to say that in the next verse anyway. But also, he says it's in his flesh. Did he, did he tear down the dividing wall in his flesh? Yes, he did. But also in his flesh, he nullified the law of commandments and decrees. The second part. In his flesh, he nullified the law of commandments and decrees. There's a lot of debate about what that is, of course, because that's another what. How does this fit in with the law? How to abolish the law, I think the ESV says. Abrogate the law. And certainly, he abolished the man-made laws, the pharisaical laws. That's pretty clear. Those were just man-made. But there's probably more going on here. It's not just he nullified the law, that, like the you know the laws that the Pharisees said. You know you, you can't carry your cot on the Sabbath kind of stuff. The, the silly stuff Jesus made fun of almost by healing a guy and saying carry that cot, and then they all got mad at him for breaking that little law. Yes, he abolished that, but there's also a sense in which he abolished the actual. Torah law, the law of the first five books of the Bible, the ceremonial portions of it. And I don't want to get into a big discussion about that, what that entails and how you define what's what. But certainly if you look back, we know we don't adhere to, we, we don't get circumcised. We don't have to. It's not an obligation. That's one of the part of the law that's not in effect. We don't eat the diet prescribed necessarily. You can if you want to. I'm saying they were prescribed. 
We don't sacrifice animals for sin and otherwise. They would sacrifice animals just for worship. Because God said, you worship the, the, the aroma of the burnt offering is worship. We, that was abolished. A, a whole lot of the old law was nullified in Christ, in his flesh. And how, how could this possibly be? Well, it says elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus basically fulfilled the law and the commandments by his life, his whole life. From the moment he was incarnated to the time he was seated at the right hand of God, death, burial, and resurrection included, he totally fulfilled the law, and he inaugurated a new covenant, the New Testament law, which, in essence, abrogates the old one, overrides it, and we have a new covenant in play. The old covenant's still there for us to look at and learn from, but we're not bound by it unless it's been reconstituted in the New Covenant. And if you notice, like the Ten Commandments, all but one of them are repeated in the New Testament. So like the Ten Commandments are obviously part of the New Covenant. And other moral stipulations like love the Lord your God with your whole soul, strength, and mind, that's from the Old Covenant carried into the New. Love your neighbor as yourself, carried into the New. So there's plenty of moral commands that have come into the new, but in effect, all that ceremonial law that was designed for the citizenship of Israel is no longer in effect. It's, it's been nullified, abrogated. It's still there for us to learn from, but it's not in effect. It's not even in effect for modern-day Jews, by the way, in case you were wondering. Modern-day Jews don't sacrifice animals. If they did, they'd be put in jail. So they don't. So they can't even follow their own stipulations today because certain parts of it, the cultures they live in, would not allow them to do it. So, Does that concern them or bother them? I don't think it does, no. Maybe in some cases, some of their theological guys are a little concerned, but they've been doing it that way since <clears throat> the temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago. I think they've gotten used to it. But basically, the modern-day Jews can't fulfill the law either. And they've kind of adjusted and got, well, I guess we haven't been sacrificing animals for 2,000 years and God hasn't killed us, so maybe we're okay. I don't know what they're thinking, but they had, they had to adjust to survive. They had to, because in the cultures they moved into and they, they were spread out amongst, they wouldn't let them sacrifice their animals. <laughs> they wouldn't let them rebuild their temple either. And there's major portions of the old Jewish law that even Jews today cannot fulfill. They just can't. So, Jesus Christ, in effect, instituted something new, even, even within Israel. It's like they can't even fulfill the law. It's been abrogated. And he did it, and the whole point of this was in his flesh. The word in his flesh is more extensive than in the blood. In the blood means the death, specifically, when he shed his blood. The flesh is like his entire life. In his entire life, fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law perfectly. He met every requirement of the law. And was raised and vindicated and seated at the right hand and everything's under him now. So that's why John Eadie says put in his flesh with the second with verse 15. And I, I, that's a good argument. I like it. But if you put it anywhere if you put it where the ESV does which is at the front there's nothing heretical about that. Nothing wrong about that. It's okay. 
Because so. a little clarification on his on verse 15 in Colossians 2, right, 16 and 17. Where right. he, he reads, uh, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. There you go. So those festivals which have died off since the writing of these letters, not the festivals aren't died off, but the practices, a lot of the practices have been replaced by Christ. They were shadows. The purpose of them, as Colossians says, was to foreshadow the reality in Christ. That's, that's exactly what it's saying. And by the way, Colossians was written, we believe, at the same time as Ephesians. If you read the two, you'll see a lot of similar language. It's like Paul was maybe working on one and says, oh, that's good, I think I'll stick that one over here. I don't know. But he probably wrote them very similar. And you can get a lot of similar phraseology in the two, a lot of similar words show up in both, even though he's stressing something different in Colossians than he is in Ephesians. So, that was a good clarification. Thanks, Jim. So that's what in himself Jesus did. Somehow he tore down the dividing wall and he also nullified this law of commandments, which if you read the law of commandments and you adhere by, you can see why that would separate people from being in the people of God outside the people of God because to be a Jew in the Old Testament you had to live weirdly from the rest of the world you had to live differently, strangely you had to eat differently you had to circumcise your boys you had to all these cleanliness laws where you had to like clean yourself for all kinds of um, strange reasons at times um, it was weird and it was in that law of commandments and decrees and ordinances and Jesus basically abrogated that, nullified it, and says, no, now it's in me. So that law was, a, was like the source of this dividing law. It wasn't the dividing law. Jesus said the law is good. Paul says the law is good, but the law exposes sin, right, according to Romans. The law exposes sin. So just like this law of commandments set up these kind of exclusive, my people are like this and everyone else isn't, that essentially over time erected a dividing wall of partition and created hostility so that you have the ins and the outs hating each other, hating on each other. And Jesus, what Paul is saying here is Jesus didn't just come to nullify the law. He also tore down the dividing wall. He made the two groups one, and therefore that's because he is our peace. He is our peace. Took the hostility away, took the dividing wall away, took... The law of commandments nullified it. And the end of 15, here's why. So that he might create the two in himself. I'm going very literal here. So that he might create the two in himself into one new man, making peace. That he might take, basically it means what you see in the ESV. Take the two, create one new man. Create, the word create is intentional. Create one new man. Two groups made into one new group that he calls one new man. And he'll explain that a little more as we go. But Jesus created it, thereby making peace. That's why he's a peacemaker. That's why he's the peacemaker here. 
But what's interesting is he created it back in verse 13 in his blood and in his flesh in verse 14. He, uh, this, and he says that more clearly in verse 16. Not only did he make the two into one new man, now he gets into the vertical. He did it for another reason, for a higher reason. He did it so that he might reconcile, and I translated it intentionally, to reconcile the both in one body to God, to the cross. Through the cross, killing the hostility in it. And this is, if you stop and think about it, this is, uh, I would say, a unique idea in Scripture, a unique verse. Because uh, we know, we're taught well about what the cross did. We know what the cross did. If you read Romans, read Galatians, you read Colossians, the cross forgave our sins. The cross redeemed us, the cross justified us, the cross enabled God's adoption of us, the cross did a lot of things. But if you were asked to list ten things that the cross did, if you didn't know this verse, you probably wouldn't list this as one of the accomplishments of the cross. According to verse 16, 15 and 16 taken together. The cross created the church, the gathered people of God that were once hostile and now in the group. The cross created the new people of God. The new man is the new people of God. The cross created that. That's, that's kind of weird. Saying Jesus died to create a church. We don't usually say that. That's what verse 15 and 16 are basically saying. Saying, Jesus died. He, died. he did all the other stuff, too. Not denying any of that. But in this particular set of verses, Paul's making a very unusual point that we don't usually think about. The cross didn't just do all that. It also created a body of believers. The cross created the body of believers. When Jesus died, by his blood, the ones far off, became near. The cross brought them near. And he unified them into a new, one new body. He created a body for himself. The body of Christ, literally. The church, the body of Christ, the, the believers, the people of God were created, verse 15, in himself, in Jesus, verse 16, through the cross when he killed the hostility and he made the two one. And that's just something to stop and think about and ponder. Jesus created a body of believers through the cross. And just think on that. <laughs> and we'll have like the reference in uh, Romans 9 where you know, Paul refers to the Hosea, the Old Testament, essentially, if you want to say, prophesying the Gentiles coming in. So 
during 24 and 9, it says, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved ones who is not my loved ones, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Yes? Kind of goes to what we talked about last week. We took more of an overall look at Ephesians, and it was unity in Christ. Mm -hmm. So what you're sharing goes so with that, that we're not just saved for ourselves, but to be in community, to show what Christ has done you know, the right. idea of just being, you know, you can get excited. I was saved, you know, God saved me from my sin, but he saved us in order to live out that fellowship in the body of Christ so that it can be the example to the world. Exactly. Yes. And Stephanie, I, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I, I know we discussed that. Is it that when we are seated with Christ, of course individually, yes, but that see, that we're seated as the body. He's the head of the body. With one another, we're seated with Christ. Yes. Together, all the people of God are, make up the body of Christ. But for all time, actually. In some mysterious, beautiful way. So and that's sense, how we're seated with So in a sense, you could translate new man. It's really a new body. You know, it's, when it says like it takes that, the yeah. two to one, it's yeah. really creating... Just a new identity, right? A new identity, but it's it's like a singular identity. It's yeah. like a new it's like the unity, as he was talking about, and as, as it's very clear, starting in this set of verses. Jesus created one new man, he created one body, which is with him, it's his body. He's the head of the body, it said in the last verse of chapter one. God gave him his head to the body, and Jesus essentially created the body by dying for it. He died for the body and brought all these faraway people. Yeah. I'm sitting here pondering the hostility. So you've got Jews who became believers in Christ and then Gentiles who became believers in Christ. And the hostility you know, centuries, millennia that existed between the two groups. And then what does it mean that it was a new that we've become a new man, one new man and it makes me think of um, in Acts 15, some men from Judea, uh, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So then the church leaders have to get together over okay, well, what is required. So we've got these two totally different groups being meshed together. And what's this going to practically mean? And what can we accept and what can we not accept? Yes. What's going to be, what is in and what is out? Now and just how, how mind-blowing and difficult that must have been. Right, that, that conference in Acts, which that's Acts 16? I'm sorry. Which, act, which right. chapter was that? 15. 15, 15. Acts 15. Yeah. The Council of Acts 15, yeah. they had to, we've got a new man here. We've got, a, we've got Gentiles over here who are eating meat that's sacrificed to idols because that's what they normally do. We got Jews that are rather offended by that. Uh, well, guys, stop doing that. They can't handle it. We've got to be one. We've got to work together. So yeah, that's what that council was for. Was to try to what's the new culture going to look like? What are the new rules of this culture going to look like to have one new man? Because the other thing about the one new man is the near ones are no more either. 
He took two groups. Yeah. The near ones are no longer the near ones. He took the near ones and obliterated their whole law of commandments. He's got a whole new man. The near and the far are now in a new near. Uh, the both are now one body. The both are one body, and they're, they're new, and all the rules are new, and that's what Acts 15 is trying to do is help. Let's figure out what that is. Also, the letter of Galatians kind of addresses that, too, where... Mm -hmm. You know, you've got these Gentile churches in Galatia, and then you have these probably the same type of folks from Jerusalem coming up and saying, you guys got to get circumcised. you got to get with the program, the old way of doing business. And Paul has to write a whole letter to say, no, 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 no. This is it's a new thing here. We don't do circumcision in this new man. This is a new testament, a new covenant. And Galatians kind of gets at that, too. It wasn't easy. No. Peter didn't get it right. Peter, yeah, Peter and Paul had a little face to face. Thankfully, Peter, I think, got it right eventually, but Paul had to correct him. So, in modern day, then, even, like, how, how do you draw the line with certain things? Like, I have a cousin who's Seventh day Adventist, and as you know, they're they're very adamant about. <laughs> in time stuff. In time stuff. Well, observing the Sabbath. And the Sabbath on Saturday. Having the Sabbath on Saturday, like yes. Jewish law. So, right. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, and, and he doesn't, well, I haven't seen him in a long time, but even, he, he's just, he's a congenial guy. He wouldn't, like, beat me over the head mm -hmm. or say, man, Mark, you're being really worldly. Although he might think it, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I would be thinking, well, you know, you're not. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you don't have to do that, you know. Right. Um, you don't have to have the Sabbath on Saturday because, you know, so, so I guess my question is how do you know what to bring forward and what not to? Yeah. I'm not going to answer that one because I don't need an answer. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not in the way I can communicate. Well, that's, that's kind of interesting. Yes, we have one new man. And well, yeah, we have one new man yet. Well, one application, though, I think, because this section, if you think about it, this is a section that's technically not applicable to modern-day readers because this hostility today, we don't have the same hostility, right? But we can apply it to other kinds of hostility that are analogous to it, right? Think of it this way. Those of us who've been doing church for 40 years, 50 years, and then suddenly God saves somebody off the street who doesn't even know who David and Moses are, or Jesus. And well, he probably knows Jesus because he got saved, but he comes in and he has no clue about the culture. He's like a far one brought in. You know, we kind of, in our hearts, we may have a hostility dividing wall up for those people out there. And in the gospel, that Jesus tore that hostility down. We're not supposed to have that hostility. And we have the challenges of having the far one suddenly brought near into our culture. And we're, oh gosh, guys, just cover with tattoos. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and you gotta, you gotta like, whoa, whoa. How do we deal with these people who, who do things differently? And, and God's always, that's the beauty of it, is God's always bringing the far ones in throughout history. He's adding these far ones into the body. Little by little, and here we have this comfortable. We think we're the end group, and then we have. But we, we develop a hostility in our minds. Of course, it wasn't created by Jesus. It was it's us. 
thinking in the flesh, and then God brings these people who are not from our culture and do things very differently and don't understand the way we do things in, and there's this little like, whoa, what are you doing with that? And you have to do another Acts 15 council or something. <laughs> so, well, you probably shouldn't be doing this and that because you're offending whatever. And that's what, that's what the church and elders and pastors are always dealing with issues like that. And all of this, even to this day, is like, what do you do with this newfangled? He, the, that guy was far out, and now he's near, and we have to deal with him because Jesus, Jesus is the one who did it. Jesus brought him here, right? Well, it seems like throughout history, the trouble with, not the trouble, the difficulty of unity is that it's easier to impose a rule than it is to say what unity could or should look like. Yeah. So in Galatians, when they were saying you got to be circumcised, it's because that was easy. You know, that's what you're supposed yeah. to do. It's easy to say, have you met X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C? And then if you did, you're good. So that's, that's the difficulty we still face. It may not be circumcision, but it's some other issue. Yeah, it, the same idea is the fight for unity. You're right. In fact, that is Ephesians 4, 1, 2, and 3, right? If you read that, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I like what you said about the. it's easier to have a rule to say, don't do this. And I, it's sort of like, um, well, we have a lot of traffic laws. We don't have a thing saying, drive with unity and consideration. <laughs> that's it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right? That's it. it becomes my, you know, everyone who drives faster than I am is a complete maniac. Everyone who drives slower than I am, moron. Right. You some unity in that uh, response. <laughs> <laughs> we can all relate to that. Exactly. <laughs> so if your unity could be mine, we'd be good. Yes, exactly. Picturing the big old traffic cop and the big old traffic cop's uniform says, Love! Jesus keeps bringing in, right? When we get comfortable with our group, 
He brings in another one and it's like, ooh, <coughs> gotta adjust to this now. But it's, it's, that's what chapter four is all about, actually, which we won't have time to get to, unfortunately. But Ephesians four is, the, the command is to walk, the first command is to walk worthily of the calling, the, the calling God has on us that was talked about in the sermon. Mm -hmm. That's the first, but then it's like a. It also says with all these other traits of doing it with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another. Bearing that's that's a clue right there. It's hard. Carry. Oh my gosh, I can bear with patience. All of it, it's not it's not easy. And then it says, main being diligent to maintain the unity. That's like the next big command after the first one, which is walk. It's it's hard work. Maintaining unity is hard work. But it's there. Jesus created it. That's the point. He created it. And actually, if you go on from Ephesians 4, the next few verses, he tells you what, what we have in common. And it's not, it's not our preferences. It's, it's, it's one body, one hope of our calling, one spirit, one faith, one hope, one Lord, and one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. That's that's what makes us one. Is we are we have that, and that's another that's worth pondering too. Chapter four, once again. Sorry, I can't get to it any further than that. But the unity is Jesus creates it. It's up for us to work to maintain it. It's nice to know that He creates it. It's not our job to create unity. We have unity. We just have to identify it, remember it, and 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 modify our, you know, be humble and gentle and, and okay, okay, there's unity here. I see it. That person has the same spirit, the same Jesus, the same Father, the same Trinity, they have the same faith as me, they have the same hope, the same calling. Okay. Okay, there's unity here. I can work with that. Because Jesus, that's what unifies us. Was Paul unified when he had the sharp disagreement and separated? Them? Probably not. <laughs> At that moment. Probably not. I think that's interesting that events like that are recorded for us to let us know even the mighty Paul can maybe not be right in everything. We don't know for sure, but who is, it's just they had a disagreement. The cool thing is, is that he actually mentions Mark later in his letters. Mm -hmm. In his last letter, I think he says um, something nice about Mark. So it's like where he didn't appreciate Mark early in his life, later, towards the end of his life, he was, there's a similar that there was some reconciliation there. Didn't he tell him like bring the parchments or something like that? Mm -hmm. yeah. He's telling Timothy to do that. Yeah, but... Yeah, he's, he talks about, my, I don't remember the actual context, but yeah, he had a disagreement with Barnabas, a disagreement with Mark, and yet, by God's grace, it appears like he worked that through because Mark was called, I think, by endearing terms in the second, his last letter to Timothy. I want to try to get through the verses here because they'll probably come piling out of here at any moment. 
do, I just wanted to quote a verse from Isaiah um, 57, verse 19, which I just thought was striking, considering what we've just been studying. I'm pretty sure Paul had this very phrase in mind when he wrote this pen this. It says in Isaiah 57, 19, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. And I think that's exactly what Paul had in mind when he says, He himself is our peace, that peace. He's shouting peace to the far and to the near. And he's creating one new man through his, through his life, but primarily his work on the cross for his entire life. I think that verse is like, I think he had that in mind when he penned all this. He's using the same terminology, peace far near, peace far near. And then speaking of that, verse 17 speaks of that very idea that Isaiah just spoke of 800 years prior to Paul writing this letter. And when he came, he proclaimed good news of peace to you, or says in your versions, preached peace. I, I, the idea of preaching is not just talking loud. It's, it literally is gospelized or preached good news. So he's preaching the good news of peace. When he came, he preached good news to you, the ones far off, and to you, the ones near. It's like, well, he didn't say, and to you, the ones near. It says, you, I'm talking to the far off ones, former far off ones. Another indication it's primarily Gentile. But he's saying he preached to both groups when he came. And just a, a thought here. Who's the he in this verse? Christ. Christ is Jesus. When did Jesus go to Ephesus and preach in their pulpit? I, I missed that in, in the Gospels, right? Right? I mean, I don't think Jesus ever made it up to Ephesus. But he preached the Gentiles. Limited. Yeah. But he had some non-Jewish encounters. Okay. Right. I get your point. Yeah. During his ministry, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, the, the woman that came and don't throw pearl to swine. But he's writing to Ephesians here, though, right? The people who read this letter, he probably didn't preach to. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. You're right, he did preach the Gentiles. Yeah, it's, it's but he, he, didn't, he didn't talk to, he didn't go, I don't think he had a podcast at that time that reached Ephesus. <laughs> he, uh, he didn't do it. It's like, it's just interesting that Paul says, when he came and preached, when he, Jesus preached it, he preached good news to you guys. He's the one that proclaimed the good news, but who actually proclaimed the good news? Was it physically Jesus? It was probably, yeah, though. Kind of, yeah, it was physically Jesus. He preached it through his life. Right? But, I mean, <laughs> you know, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But he physically wasn't the, the mouth. Right. The mouth was probably a person like Paul. If you read Acts, Apollos was there. Was a, Timothy was there, a couple others. Jesus physically didn't preach, yet Paul says he did, which is neat for someone like myself to recognize that when you proclaim the gospel is actually Jesus you're, you're, you're speaking not only on his behalf but Paul's kind of taking it further he's saying it's Jesus talking through your proclamation of the gospel 
It's actually sobering. It's sobering to think that. It's like, this isn't just a man. It's just not me or Rich or Paul or anyone preaching the gospel. When you proclaim the gospel, it's actually it's as if Jesus himself is talking. And that is made possible by the Spirit of Jesus going out through the word that's being proclaimed by these frail human beings who are sinful and just jars of clay. It's actually Jesus who's doing the proclaiming. The one who came to preach peace in Isaiah is preaching whenever the gospel is proclaimed. And this isn't just like now or the sermon. It's when you all proclaim the gospel to people in your family and your friends and your circles. Jesus is speaking through you, through the Spirit. Jesus is preaching. Well, isn't that kind of tied in with that God in a sense thinks of himself as his word going forth and then Jesus mm -hmm. saying and the word became flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us, right? So I mean yeah. God God identifies with himself and his character in his word. Exactly. Exactly right. When the word of God goes forth, Jesus is the word incarnate. So it's Jesus coming to you through the words. Jesus speaking to you through the words. Jesus himself is preaching peace to you through the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed, it's Jesus himself saying, peace, peace, peace. Horizontal peace, but also vertical peace. And the vertical peace is now actually was hinted at in verse 16, if you notice. Not only is it horizontal peace, the two one, it's also reconcile the both to God. Reconcile the both to God. So he took the new man that he created and he reconciled that new man to God. So there's peace with God, that's so included. So the peace is both horizontal and vertical. Paul starts with the horizontal in, in his argument, but he, he includes the vertical here in verses 16, that little phrase, he might reconcile the both in one body to God, which if you remember back in the very first chapter when it's when God the Father is has us in mind before the foundation of the world and wants to adopt us, adopt those who believe, it says, in the beloved happens to be Jesus in that first chapter. He redeemed us and forgave us. And he doesn't explain at that time what that looks like, but you can see he's explained it by now. Chapter 2 explains it pretty clearly. In his blood, raised from the dead, saved by grace. So, God, remember, God had us in mind to be his children. We were dead in our sins instead, and he had to redeem us. And remember back in chapter 1, what redeem means. Redeem means pay the blood price, pay the, pay the price, in this case, blood price of Christ. To get back what belonged to him, his people, from before the foundation of the world, and make them his own. And here's where Jesus, this is verse here I think is making us think of that, saying he reconciled this group of people whom the Father had in mind he's bringing them back to the Father I collected them for you Father and you took me to heaven, they're with me 
we're now the relationship with God is restored the peace he proclaims we've been reconciled that means we're, we're back together with God we're back together with our father we're back together with the one who created us and had us in mind before the foundation of the world will be his children the family is is in play now we are now fully adopted members of the family Christ did that he reconciled us to God he creates this body he brings he gathers from far off into one new man and here you go father we're back together now the way you dreamed of it the way you thought of it the way you planned it it's 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 here they are and that'll be come to fruition at the end of time because there are still more members that need to be added to this more people being added to this more far off ones coming in and 19 20 21 22 this isn't going to be very go over this in five minutes I could probably go over it more next week. But I will, this is another verse, another sentence. And uh, here's where he's going to explain what he did in place of tearing down the dividing wall. This is the building project. Okay, this is, this is a good picture, a good analogy of you know, this one new man. But now he's going to describe the one new man as a, as a building. And he says in verse 19, echoing back to what he said in verse 11 and 12, we're, we're strangers and aliens no longer. We're no longer strangers and aliens. But instead, we're citizens of the Holy Ones, or saints, and household members, or members of the household of God. So think about it. Strangers and aliens. These Gentiles were strangers and aliens of the covenants of promise in verse 11 and 12. You're not that anymore. Strangers. You're no longer strangers. You're now fellow citizens. You, you were outside the commonwealth of Israel. Now you're in it. And so was everybody else. Everybody else who was outside the promises, the people of God are now fellow citizens of the people of God, the holy ones. And I, I like the ideas here. The first idea, the, the uh, holy ones and the household. Holy ones, is, that's like the positional. We're separated for God for a, there's honor there, there's a purpose, we're sacred, we're made sacred for God's purpose. But the household has the other connotation of we're children and we have a father and we have brothers and sisters, right? So you have the, you have like the honored position, the holy ones, and you have the household Position. And this is a theme that Paul keeps, the dichotomy is coming up over and over again, actually. Um, he actually started it back in chapter 1, verse 1, or verse 4 and 5, when he said, Before the foundation of the world, he called you to be holy and blameless. That's the saints, the holy positional. And he predestined us to be adopted as sons, the family. So God wanted us to be holy and blameless positional with him in a place of honor and for sacred purposes but he also wanted to he wanted some kids he wanted a family so the distinction began there in chapter one three and four and here he's kind of repeating that distinction here you've got we're fellow citizens of the holy and we're members of the household we got them both we used to be strangers from the holy we were outside and we were aliens which aliens has the family you, you didn't belong to the family 
you aren't part of the family. So he takes the two positions, strangers and aliens, and replaces them with fellow citizens and household members. And that's what Jesus did. That's what God wanted all along, back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And here it is. And then he gets to the metaphor of what he's building. Instead of tearing down the dividing wall, he's building, essentially, a holy temple in the Lord. If you look at verse 21, a holy temple in the Lord. And verse 22, a dwelling place of God. And these two ideas, they're both describing this building. But... Once again, the holy temple of the Lord is the positional position of honor, a holy temple. And the dwelling place of God is where a father lives with his kids. So he describes the two again. Holy temple, dwelling place. God the Father is, is coming together through Christ. This, this one new man is being built. And if you, if you read it, you notice it says... Verse 20, they're being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I'm going to save that comment for next week because that's, that phrase is going to come up in chapter 3 and I'll explain what it is. But the key thing is Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone of this building. The apostles and prophets build upon, they lay the foundation of Christ and he's adding in whom the whole structure joined together the structure, this building it's like he's bringing another far off one, bringing a man, putting him here in this holy temple. It's, it's growing. It's, it says it grows into a holy temple. He's built. He's basically he's erecting the building, little piece by piece, block by block, year by year, century by century. This temple is being built, and he's, he's using the metaphor of there's more people being added. He keeps joining them to this people of God. And what is what is the point of this whole structure? It is ultimately going to be a holy temple for the Lord and his dwelling place. His dwelling place. Notice dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So you've got, this, you've got the Trinity going on here. God the Father in the Spirit and Jesus is the foundation of it. So he's there already, the cornerstone. So you got the Trinity involved. It's their house. And we are his house. The way the metaphor works. He's going to talk about other metaphors like the body and other things later. But right now he's making this big picture of Jesus the master builder. He's torn down the dividing wall and he's constructing this temple that is the dwelling place of the triune God with us. God with us. God the Father, Son, and Spirit are dwelling with us. And Jesus, through his death, enabled this to happen and created this and is causing this to happen. He's building up this holy temple, building up this dwelling place of God. And Jesus Christ is the very cornerstone. And that cornerstone idea is another Isaiah scripture that I, I want to get to. Paul oftentimes has Old Testament illusions in his head when he's writing this stuff. Just like the peace, peace to those far near. He also said this. I think it's Isaiah. Isaiah 28. 
16. Yeah. Therefore, thus the Lord says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, is the way Isaiah says it. And it's quoted in Peter, Peter, first Peter quotes that too. But it comes originally from Isaiah that there's this dwelling place, this home where God dwells with man. The triune God dwells with man. Just as he had promised in chapter 1 that there would be an inheritance, remember an allotment. The allotment, as I said back then, speaking of the dwelling place. The dwelling place of the people of God that he had chosen before the foundation of the world. And then he prays his prayer. Remember the second request of his prayer? She would know the wealth of his inheritance in the saints. The wealth of his inheritance in the saints. I think he's explaining that to us right here. His inheritance is in the saints. This temple his dwelling place is in the temple. He wants us to know and see that. Looks like I need to call it. Because they're letting out. But you know, I could go on and on. So, any quick questions? Just a common thing that struck me was in the Old Testament, the temple was a dwelling place for God. And the people were not allowed to come near to God. They had to stay yeah. outside away from the priests. So here we have Paul saying, here we are, we have the, the triune God built, and we are included in that. It's a very, yeah. diff it's a very different picture. It's and, and actually the some word, holy place you, you look at but can't be, and now you are. Right. In, in fact, the word holy, holy things in the Old Testament refers to the furniture, not the feet. Right. And in Christ, the holy things are now the people, not the furniture. Unless, unless you take this metaphor, literally, that we are these. The structure. So there's a transition from the old being the holy stuff was the instruments and the tools, and now it's actually the people who make it up. We're the saints. We're the holy ones. So yeah. More. It was just going to be a request. Do you think maybe you could put it on the schedule to come back to do Ephesians 4 through 6? Because I know our family would really enjoy it. <laughs> Take that into consideration. Like, I'm not the one who makes the schedule. So. But yes, I would. Uh, so, Jeff, if you're listening. I would love to do 4, 5, and 6. <laughs> Jeff, you're listening to this. Just request it. Yeah, because we won't even have gotten to the first command. Yes. By the time we That's true. Yes. And then the first. We, we don't get to that first command, and that was that was why I broke it off. Then it was like we're going to get the theology down. The practice comes later. And good luck figuring that out on your own, folks. <laughs> well, thanks for that. <laughs> unity and disunity. Right. Right. Different lane now. Let me, let me uh, pray, and we'll call them. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness in revealing to us your purposes in Christ to build a temple that you want to dwell in. And that temple consists of us, your people, that you have made one, unified through your blood. How wonderful this is, Lord God. Help us to remember that as we 
do life together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.